Ladies and gentlemen, your conference call is about to begin. Here's your moderator, Ms. Marilyn Stern. Thank you, Ellen. Welcome, everyone. I'm Marilyn Stern, Communications Coordinator for the Middle East Forum. Today's briefing will be offered by Greg Roman, MEF's director, on last week's topic, Making Sense of Israel's Political Upheaval. Due to technical difficulties that occurred during last week's call, participants were unable to connect during the Q&A with our speaker, Professor Shmuel Sandler. Following Greg's briefing, we'll open the lines for your Q&A. Without further ado, let's turn to Greg and begin. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, everyone, depending on where you are. For those who are celebrating a very happy Passover and Chag Sameach, to those who are uh, celebrating Easter, happy Easter, and I really hope that we have the chance to uh, get a little bit into the weeds and then to come out and understand a little bit better of what's going on currently with Israel's domestic political situation. Um, I uh, started going to Israel earlier this year, about once every three weeks to be involved with a certain project that MEF has been uh, uh, quite invested in for the last three or four months. And I find that since January, February, and March, the three times that I've been there in about three-week intervals, that the situation has become increasingly more fraught for Prime Minister Netanyahu. His sense of isolation in the Prime Minister's office his sense of not being able to find reliable allies, the uh, alienation that has come from some of his coalition partners, and many of the criminal investigations that have been um, sort of uh, set up in, in what's called a File 1000, File 2000, File 3000, File 4000, have all come to start to haunt him. Based on actions that were taken by the uh, Prime Minister, or allegedly taken by the Prime Minister, and his spouse, even starting some seven, eight years ago, are finally starting to catch up with him. So what we'll try to do on this call over the next 10 minutes is to speak about his precarious political situation. We'll talk about some of his political partners, and we'll also get in a little bit into the wider regional issues that might be affecting Israel's domestic, electoral, and political concerns. First, dealing with the Prime Minister himself. He has undergone at least... 10 or 11 different investigations by the Israeli Police Department as it's related to these different scandals. One dealing with the exchange of favors for pink champagne and cigars. The second dealing with the exchange of favors for trying to create a more lax environment for uh, media deregulation. The third dealing with the idea that there was a um, ship, uh, a submarine that was purchased from the German government by a group of uh, Netanyahu friends that came to the point where um, they uh, uh, were getting actual uh, write-offs and bribes for being able to get this uh, easier purchase of a submarine, a Dolphin-class submarine that's one of the Israeli Navy's uh, most elite ships. And the most recent investigation has to do with the Prime Minister offering even more deregulations for other Israeli companies. So this is file 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, and 4,000. If we go back to September of 2008, this is when Prime Minister, former Prime Minister and, and, and also Israeli convict Ehud Olmert made the, the announcement that he would resign in the wake of a similar amount of scandals. Olmert had something like 
nine different criminal files opened against him, even though he had a pretty steady coalition with the labor government and some of his other partners. Now, Netanyahu is, is getting to a similar point, where just the sheer volume of the legal accusations against him are putting him to a situation where it's becoming increasingly more difficult for him to be able to manage the country. Now, this is not a judgment on the prime minister's ability to be able to run the country, but it is something in terms of the ability for his coalition partners to not uh, get wrapped up in a lot of the scandals that are going on. Now, this doesn't just stop at Prime Minister Netanyahu in terms of some of the uh, alleged nefarious activity that this government has undertaken. You also have investigations into Interior Minister Derry. You have investigations that are going on into some elements of other political partners there, and you also have a controller's investigation into the finance ministry. Now, what this translates to in terms of the Israeli political parties that are trying to uh, keep this coalition together and the others on the outside and the opposition that are trying to make it fall apart is, is that there are several signature key issues that they're trying to get passed before any potential elections would come to bear. The first is dealing with the status of African migrants in Israel. From 39,000, half of whom were slated to be uh, moved to Western European and other Western uh, countries in a deal that the Prime Minister came to effectuate with the United Nations on Sunday. But what we saw in a mere 24 hours after, about 18,000 of those migrants uh, illegally in Israel since uh, the mid-2000s, some of them, was that he canceled the deal because of coalition concerns. He put the stability of his government ahead of being able to come up with some sort of long-term solution for migrants who have been, uh, in one way or another, changing the character of South Tel Aviv for the last decade. Now, I believe one of the reasons why he did this was because a very strong faction within his party, within the Likud, and also two other parties, that led by Naftali Bennett of Avait Yehudi, and Aryaderi and Shatz were seemingly going to go along with the deal, but then basically stabbed Netanyahu in the back after he was willing to make this deal with the United Nations uh, High Commissioner for Human Rights. Excuse me, High Commissioner for Refugees. Another issue that was a fraught moment was the passing of the 2018-2019 state budget, where we saw all kinds of political considerations being asked for by different coalition parties to be included within the, the budget itself. And if they didn't, then the coalition would have fallen apart and we would have gone to elections. Now, some people accuse the prime minister of sort of reverse engineering the process of basically creating a coalition crisis to have a snap election so that there would be a situation in which he would be able to have a uh, sort of national mandate on his legitimacy as prime minister not to have an election because it was a good time to have an election, but to have an election because he wanted to be able to cast off or spurn off the um, nation's doubts in him because of these different allegations against him. But what I think that you found in the budget crisis was that he was able to be outmaneuvered by his coalition partners, specifically two people. Moshe Kachlon, the finance minister and head of the Kulanu party, whose party is uh, not polling so well in the polls right now, and also Avigdor Lieberman, the defense minister and head of the Israel Beitano political party. Now, when we move to sort of the future issues that I promised that I would talk about that might affect this coalition and Israel's domestic political stability, you find yourself looking at some new stars that are coming into the mix 
in terms of any uh, election that will be held in the near future. Uh, the Labor Party is uh, not really doing so well right now under Avdi Gabay, its new chairman. You have Yair Lapid, the head of Yeshatid, a secular centrist party that's in the opposition that's polling almost equally with the Likud. You have Orly Levy, a uh, disenfranchised former member of Israel Beitain and Lieberman's party, who's very, very strong on social welfare and children's uh, uh, rights issues, where she's coming in around somewhere on 10 mandates, which is approximately 8 to 9% of the Knesset. Uh, a very strong showing for someone who has uh, just a personality. And then you also have Moshe Yalom, the former defense minister. But all of these... Uh, individuals who, who seek to do well in the polls as they cast right now are only what I would call the, the flavor of the day. These are people that are making uh, themselves relevant based on the current uh, domestic political climate. But the way that Israeli voters tend to think is, is, is they um, will have many, many pet peeve issues that will come up, whether it be, and I'm not saying that these are pet peeve issues, I'm saying that they're issues that they consider to be important to them in the moment. But when they get to the uh, copy, when they get to the, the ballot box, there's two things that they care about. One is security. The second is economics. These are the two main issues that Israeli voters will, will go on. And if you find yourself in the middle of a conflict like you do right now with the IDF trying to uh, create a hermetic seal between the Israeli border with Gaza and those who are trying to march across that border from Gaza spurned on by Hamas, they'll vote on security issues. If you see that um, there are uh, Israelis that are, um, if you see that the Israelis are, uh, are in the middle of an economic crisis or that there might be some threats of being uh, boycotted or, or something's going on in terms of them having a, a Teva-like crisis, like we just saw the, the shares of Teva, the world's largest manufacturer of generic pharmaceuticals and an Israeli company, think then they might vote on economy. So... That's what happens in Israeli political considerations when we get to elections. It's going to be one part, Netanyahu's scandal. It'll be another part, the current security situation. It'll be another part, what's going on right now with Israel's economy, which is uh, it's strong, but it's also teetering a little bit. And I think that the last thing we have to take into consideration is what's going on in the rest of the Middle East. Hezbollah, as it stands right now, is not ready to fight another war with Israel until I would estimate at the earliest July, August of this coming summer. They're still too committed within Syria to pose any uh, uh, serious threat without being wiped off the ground if they were to approach Israel right now. So Israel has about three to four months to be able to uh, take into consideration what's going on with uh, Lebanon and, and the threat coming from the northern border. The issue dealing with Syria in the Northwest and the Iranian proxies where you have Pakistani, Afghani, Iraqi, Syrian, some Lebanese, and other Shia militias that are starting to create uh, a very significant force on the ground right north of the Golan Heights is something that Israel has to be worried about. This is something that I think that any Israeli would take into consideration that if there were to be a uh, outburst of, of, of attacks, and I'm not talking about some kind of war that would be launched, but if we were to see more conflagrations, as we saw in the, in the mix-up about a month ago, where an Israeli F-16I fighter uh, plane was shot down after it was responding to the uh, incursion of an Iranian unmanned aerial vehicle into Israeli territory, 
that might make people vote a little bit more to the center center right and rely on security figures rather than just starting to think about these domestic uh, political considerations. The uh, situation in the West Bank is ever precocious. We see that Abu Mazen, Mahmoud Abbas, the head of the Palestinian Authority, is definitely not a, a partner for peace. And, and, and you can tell because it, it's as if though Abu Mazen is the gift that keeps on giving to Netanyahu by being able to, to keep his moniker of there's no Palestinian to negotiate with. Because he doesn't just limit his attacks to his uh, Israeli neighbors, but now his entire cabinet, the Palestinian Authority cabinet, has started to go after um, the U.S. administration. With the amount of slurs and insults and diplomatic uh, comments which have gone against Ambassador Haley, the future Secretary of State nominee, uh, Mike Pompeo, and even President Trump, the more that Abu Mazen is off of his rocker as it deals with the level of uh, insult, even going so far to suggest that the Russians should be the new uh, uh, mediators between the Israelis and Palestinians, the more he marginalizes himself and finds himself isolated, and the more that Netanyahu is strong on the Palestinian issue vis-a-vis Israel's domestic political climate. Um, you also have to look at something else that's going on right now, which is bearing fruit out of the way in which Netanyahu has handled Israel since the beginning of the Arab Spring. Seven years after uh, Netanyahu's commitment to not get involved in uh, Arab domestic uh, political disputes, as we saw in Egypt, or in um, his, his, his uh, lack of, uh, of intervention in Syria, except as it had to deal with the shipment of uh, weapons that could uh, be, be uh, used by Hezbollah, um, Iraq, uh, Jordan, Egypt, Saudi Arabia. Most, if not all, Sunni Arab military dictatorships, autocracies, and monarchies are now finding that there is almost no daylight between Israel and themselves as it deals with Iran and also as it deals with their desire to have a better relationship with the United States after eight years of the Obama administration. We're now a year and a half into Trump, and I think that the biggest dividend for the Middle Eastern countries, which are usually considering themselves to be U.S. allies, is that they find there's two tracks in terms of getting along with the United States. The first is having a strong bilateral relationship, as we see the Prime Minister has with President Trump. And the second is to have a strong multilateral relationship between themselves and committing to the larger U.S. strategic vision for that region. So Netanyahu is now benefiting from his strong regional ties, something that may come up in any future election. And last and not least, I think that the... uh, Increasing uh, uh, Israeli involvement in countries outside of the U.S.-Israel bilateral relationship with all of the different diplomatic delegations that have visited Israel, whether it's been the um, Chinese that have come or uh, the significant amount of of, uh, visits from Russian officials with the uh, Russian deputy ambassador to uh, Tel Aviv recently saying that the Iranians were wrong to have that incursion into Israel. That if it was something that that that, that was uh, planned by the Iranians, that Israel was correct in intervening in Syria in, in terms of the way it it, it, it uh, uh, disrupted that that Iranian-Syrian joint incursion militarily, and I think that the strong relationships that Netanyahu has uh, played out may be a balance against his uh, uh, domestic uh, uh, criminal issues or investigatory issues. And it's, it's really going to be a wild card to see what happens 
with who pulls the trigger first, whether it's the Knesset deciding that to go to an election and the coalition breaks apart, or if it's an outside body like the Israeli Attorney General's office or the state prosecutor or the police that um, go down the uh, the criminal route and end up indicting the prime minister, therefore forcing him to resign. Actually, under Israeli law, if a prime minister gets indicted, there's nothing that says he has to resign. But I think that precedent shows with the Olmert case that if you get close to a uh, criminal indictment, your coalition partners or even your own party will ask you to uh, temporarily step aside to deal with your own criminal proceedings. So um, elections are not on the horizon right now. That you know, survived one crisis, but it looks as if those entering into a few more. Uh, Marilyn, I turn the uh, mic back to you for any questions. Thanks, Greg. Ellen, can you please advise our participants how to enter into the Q&A? Certainly. The question and answer period will now begin, and we invite your participation. Please note that when there are no questions in the queue, the moderator will ask a question. To join the question and answer session queue, just press star 1 on your telephone keypad. If you wish to identify yourself when your line has been unmuted, please do so. And please remember that if you have your phone on mute, take it off mute when you are selected to ask your question. So once again, to join the question and answer session queue, just press star 1 on your telephone keypad. And we'll take our first question now. Go ahead with your question, please. Margo Einstein from Newton, Massachusetts. Dr. Rahman, do you feel that there's a political agenda here against Netanyahu? And do you feel that his wife is an asset or a liability? Um, okay, so a, a political agenda by the state prosecutor's office, Margo? Pardon me? Are you asking if there's a political agenda by the state prosecutor's office? Uh, yes, that they're using uh, these um, allegations against him in order uh, to have a different kind of government. That they don't like the way he governs and they want, you know, for political purposes. Or do you feel that there is um, validity behind most of these um Criminal. Okay, so I'll, I'll I'll just respond uh, briefly. I, I I'm not going to be able to answer your question the way that I think you want me to, but um, as someone who has seen uh, other uh, Israeli criminal uh, cases play out, most uh, I think spectacularly, the accusations by the state prosecutor's office against Avigdor Lieberman in his uh, uh, Arnold Nilsson case that took place about four years ago, mm -hmm. uh, four or five years ago. Um, it's really a toss-up. I mean, you have to see what the evidence is, and right now the police haven't revealed that. Um, and on the second question regarding whether the um, uh, prime minister's uh, spouse is an asset or a liability, uh, I'll leave that up to the prime minister to decide, just like I wouldn't want anyone commenting on my own personal issues as it relates to the, uh, the uh, work that I do at MEF. I'm not going to comment on a prime minister's own personal capacity dealing with his family. I, I don't think it's a, uh, it's a uh, particularly fair question for the uh, Israeli media to get involved with unless there ends up being a, a specific case against the prime minister's wife with, with an indictment. So,
So um, I don't. Uh, yeah, sure. Thank you for your question. Are there any questions in the queue, Ellen? No, there are not, Marilyn. Ah, okay. I see one uh, that popped up on my screen. Okay, yes, there is one now. Go ahead with your question, please. Hi, Greg. Uh, Jerry Stern. Um, hey, Jerry. I have has to, hi, Greg. Good. A uh, question I have has to do with um, uh, whether um, the Attorney General could punt, so to speak, and basically uh, drag out his uh, determination of whether there are charges uh, that, uh, that BB can be indicted on uh, until the next scheduled election and I think it's November of 2018. So is it possible that he could simply um, uh, just uh, make himself busy, make it look as if he's actually doing something, but in reality um, wait until the election so that uh, he doesn't have to be placed in the difficult decision of, uh, of indicting someone or recommending an, indict an, an indictment uh, after he, of course, was appointed by BB for, for his job? So the uh, the next Israeli election is scheduled for Tuesday, November fifth, twenty nineteen, not twenty eighteen. Oh, nineteen. I'm sorry, so, that's right. Not yeah. So we're, we're we're dealing with about a uh, twenty month window here, I guess, maybe uh, a little less, uh, eighteen month window in which the um, prime minister uh, uh, and his uh, uh, electoral fate is to be decided, whether it be by the attorney general's office. I'll give you a quick overview of how the process works. First, there is a Israeli police investigation into a uh, sitting public official, in this case, the prime minister. Then the police end up making a recommendation to the state prosecutor's office, who then have to go over the entire case all over again from the beginning to look at all of the police's evidence and to see what they collected and to see if it meets the burden to bring a prosecution on a criminal level. After the state prosecutor's office reviews it, you then have the attorney general who has to review the case. So we're right now only at the second step in a four-step process for what the uh, the Attorney General will eventually have to do in terms of the decision of making an indictment. After the Attorney General um, reviews the case, he does not have the ability to immediately indict the Prime Minister. What he has to do is to then get to the point where the uh, Prime Minister is entitled to a hearing uh, to be presented with all of the evidence, and to make his case back to the Attorney General. And each of these different steps can take anywhere from three to six months. So, hypothetically, if we're looking at another four steps to take place in three to six months for each step to be effectuated, and there may even be some uh, uh, state witnesses who uh, have to corroborate their testimony, uh, there may be some other instances of what's going on with... Um, some of the other uh, accused in this case, because the, the case isn't just against the prime minister. There are dozens of people within his orbit that constitute his political circles that are being uh, uh, considered right now for, for criminal prosecution. So um, I think at the earliest, you'll see some sort of uh, advancement in this case to determine what the prime minister's fate is no earlier than nine months from now, at the, at the end of this year. The latest might be around November of 2019. So in theory, he could run out the clock, the Attorney General. Uh, he could, but I don't think that Mandelblit would do that 
because if you look at his history of involvement in prosecutions during his time as the military advocate general, his time as the cabinet secretary, and his time as the attorney general, he's never really allowed domestic political considerations, even the prime minister's uh, considerations, to influence him. All right, thank you. Thank you for your question. If anyone else would like to ask Mr. Roman a question, please press star 1 on your telephone keypad. In the absence of any questions, the moderator will ask questions. And we'll take our next question now. Go ahead with your question, please. Hi. Um, I would recommend you get a new provider of your telephone service. I understand you had trouble last week. Through this conference this, uh, call, I have been listening this, to what uh, sounds Bill, like, like children in the background. Bill, Bill uh, yeah. hi, how are you? Yeah, um, listen, we're, thank you. Thank you for the suggestion, and, and we will definitely take that into consideration. Okay. I apologize okay. for any uh, background noise. Yeah, so I have. Thanks. Thank you. And we'll take our next question now. Go ahead, please. Hi, this is uh, Robert Lewitt. I'm from Longboat Key in Florida. Uh, is any consideration given... Uh, in Israeli politics or active consideration to how popular Netanyahu may be with the Republican Party in the United States, which and the president, you know, which now is in control, and also the fact that uh, that kind of control or the you know uh, of or the dominance in American politics may not last. And uh, the Democrats may come, you know, may may, uh, may come forward uh, with a more uh, progressive and um, Obama-like agenda. So these uh, sort of thoughts will be commented on by Israeli pundits, but for the parties trying to drag Netanyahu down. I think they'll be more focused on domestic issues than the relationships with the United States. Just because of the general principle that any prime minister, in terms of his foremost foreign affairs responsibility, is to have a good relationship with the president of the U.S. So I don't think that commentary on Republicans and Democrats will be a primary issue in this election, perhaps a, a secondary issue, but they'll be first be focused on all the issues going on within Israel, and then maybe in one of the uh, points made by some of the analysts, they'll talk about the U.S.-Israel relationship. Thank you. Thank you for your question. It's all right. I, I, I see there. Oh, I see there's someone who's in the line. Go ahead. Go ahead with your question, please. Hi, this is Buncey Churchill. Greg, I wonder if you could uh, talk a little bit more about what's going to happen to these uh, people that... Israel is trying to deport. What is the feeling of the populace about getting rid of them? Um, I'll give you two perspectives. One is uh, a friend of mine who lives in South Tel Aviv, an American uh, immigrant to Israel, who went through the legal process and becoming a citizen, served in the army, and is uh, now working, paying taxes. And the second, my sister-in-law, who was born in Israel, also served in the army, also lives in South Tel Aviv, and uh, currently works in, in the uh, Israeli theater. So my uh, one friend is someone who, like some American immigrants that came to this country, saying, I did everything that I did according to the obligations that were accorded to me, 
in my um, you know immigration status. I was in Gaza. I fought for the country, and I have to to put up with these um, individuals who came to this country illegally, crossing the border, and are disrupting the culture and and, and Jewish character of South Tel Aviv. And then I have my sister-in-law saying, on the other hand, I was born in this country. I was told that we never um, are, are supposed to reject the stranger. Uh, you know, what, what kind of, uh, um, you know, country can call itself a Jewish state if we're not willing to host these uh, 40,000 refugees? It's, it's only 40,000. My friend calls them illegal migrants. My, uh, um, my sister-in-law calls them refugees. And I think that the status of these individuals um, in terms of an Israeli domestic issue, the Israelis, a uh, large majority of whom um, don't really encounter them, have no necessary opinion on what should be the consequence of them. The Israelis who live near them and live amongst them um, find that crime rates have gone up. They find that the uh, character of the neighborhood, insofar as that's an important uh, factor for them in the way in which they live in their country, has changed. And the uh, essence of uh, being a Jewish state is, is that there's a favorable consideration to uh, Jewish immigrants to the country, but not to others who came illegally by crossing the border. So um, I think that when we split this issue, Netanyahu is trying to find a, a fair situation that doesn't send these uh, uh, individuals who are mostly Sudanese and Eritreans back to Africa. He's trying to find an equitable situation to send them to a Western country. Um, but at the same time, it's not acceptable for him or his coalition partners to keep them in Israel. So um, you've had all, all kinds of plans. One plan was to give the, each one $3,500 and a plane ticket to either Rwanda or Uganda. Yeah. The latest plan was to have half of them resettle in Western European countries and the other half get five-year uh, um, residency permits in Israel. But now we're back to the drawing board after he uh, rejected this agreement on um, Monday. So uh, the feeling is, is is that, you know, you say in Hebrew, Yala, Bo, Nukavar, like, all right, come on, guys, let's let's deal with this already. Um, but uh, he's stuck between a rock and a hard place, the rock being Naftali Bennett and the hard place being the Jewish diaspora. So um, I don't know what's going to happen. Can I ask a follow-up question about the Jewish diaspora? How How is the uh, immigration rate from Europe coming to Israel? Ha, is it increased as they let more and more Muslims in, or what is, what, I know there's that no, about... There's no, um, there's no, there's no uh, Muslims coming to Israel. Mm, no. Um, there's just... Uh, I meant the Jews, Jews in Europe who are yeah, at some many, risk. Yeah, many Jews fleeing, fleeing anti-Semitism in, in France. Um, and uh, there's an article that I wrote called uh, Immigraphic, uh, Israel's demographic doomsday scenario of fault. Uh, it should be on Middle East Forum online, and it talks about the uh, birth rates. It talks about immigration rates. And um, Marilyn, can we send out a link to it in uh, in the summary of the call? Okay. Thank All right, you. And, and Marilyn, I, I have to get going now, but I wanted to thank everyone for uh, taking part in this, uh, in this call today. And uh, Marilyn, I appreciate the opportunity. Great. Thank you so much, Greg, and thanks to our participants for calling in. This concludes our conference call.